that's the beautiful thing about venture. You're competing with one fund in the morning and then you're collaborating with the same fund on a company that you're already invested in or a company that you're sharing notes on or you're sharing thoughts on that same evening. Hello and welcome to episode four of this season of the Associated Podcast, the fourth part of our docu-series on the influx of US capital into the European tech ecosystem. If you haven't listened to them already, we'd encourage you to listen to the first three episodes. So far, we've covered topics ranging from how European tech got so hot to why US investors are coming to Europe now. In the last episode, we started piecing together how all of this new capital influences competition in European VC. Danielle was squarely focused on where and how conflict manifests between funds. This week, we are looking at the reasons why fierce competition is not the only type of interaction we can expect to see between European and US funds. As we discovered last week, our guests unanimously agree that competition in Europe is growing. However, their responses were textured. Many argued that the impact of this is overblown. Competitive pressures are mitigated by several factors. To illustrate this, we'll start with something that we heard at the end of the last episode. Here's James Wise, a partner at Boulderton Capital, pointing to the fact that the opportunity set in European venture is growing. The first thing to say on this point is the pie is growing. There is increased competition, and I'll go into that in a second. But the fundamental point is this is a demand-led increase in venture capital, right? So it's not the same amount of dollars or more dollars rather chasing fewer opportunities. There are more opportunities than ever. And by opportunities, founder-led software businesses, which could scale to re-upend industries and create billions of dollars of value in the process. The number of incredible founders and really uh, impactful businesses being built now is higher than ever. You, you can measure this in terms of deal flow. You can measure it in terms of outcomes. There's lots of different ways of looking at it, aspirations of modern founders, the number of people who want to become founders. But on an aggregate level, the total opportunity for investing in those kind of companies has, and it continues to outpace the availability of capital. So what that means is actually at an aggregate level, we don't see as much competition as you might think, but because this increase in capital is following demand and the demand is still outstripping supply, I believe. I still believe that deploying capital into a European software business is, is a great thing to do and that we don't have enough of it. Even with this 10x growth in the market as a whole over the last decade, I, I think we're going to see continued levels of growth over the next decade too. So that's number one. So competition actually isn't as big as an issue. Uh, and in fact, the, the extra dollars is growing the pie, right? More capital at the C level, series A, series B, series C, just means bigger outcomes. And often it means more individuals who've been through that experience of growing a software business, all of the challenges uh, and the rewards that creates, who will then go off and build more businesses. So all of these venture dollars is also educating another generation of operators and founders, which once again grows the overall um, pie, as it were, right? It increases the talent base. And so while, and once again, I will come on to competition, while competition is occasionally an issue, overall increased uh, amount of capital benefits everyone in the ecosystem. Uh, and we are nowhere near, I believe, the cap on productive returns for venture investment in Europe. The crux of James's argument is that although there are more dollars going into European tech, the amount of productive companies that those dollars can go into is also increasing. This growing pie isn't the only competition mitigating factor. 
Obsession around competition for the best deals presumes that the best companies are obvious to everyone at the time of their early financing rounds. This may not always be the case. The other thing though, I think we really believe about venture is you could meet a hundred VCs and be turned down by 99 of them. And it only takes one true believer to back and create a industry defining, category defining, uh, global business. And so that level of conviction, whether there's 10 VCs in the market, three VCs in the market, or hundred VCs in the market is what's required. In the last episode, we heard how European tech as a whole has been re-rated and valuations have ballooned as investors have piled in looking for opportunity. James adds a layer of nuance to this. What really differentiates us, I feel, and this should be true of all VCs, is different investment theses and conviction in that thesis. So there are certain segments which are hotter than others. I, I think SaaS, certain areas of fintech, these are areas which we've always been investors in. We were very early uh, to invest in some of the defining financial technology that's is out of Europe, I, I believe. Uh, and we, we had a strong portfolio and have a strong portfolio there. But now those segments are pretty well understood, uh, broadly speaking. And, and certainly we see many uh, VCs competing uh, with us for similar deals in those segments. But there are whole swathes of the technology market which are completely underfunded. And we don't see much competition at all. How many differentiated thesis early really makes a difference to your returns. And as we think about the areas that we really want to invest in, so from changing our food supply, using software to change our food supply change, to decarbonize our homes, to reinvent the way we think about organic chemistry and applications of semantic biology, all the way through to deep applications of machine learning in new segments, whether it's construction or it's advanced materials. These are all areas where we've got theses in-house. We're working on those theses in-house and developing them. And I feel like in the long run, that's going to be our, and continues to be our area of differentiation. It's never going to be, we are the fund which invests at the highest valuation because that path leads to um, mediocre returns, I believe. And it's never going to be, we are the largest fund because I think venture doesn't quite scale. It's not just about having the most dollars under management. I think it's always going to be having a differentiated thesis. And I hope more VCs enter the market, but if you've got a thousand people thinking working in VC, you're still not going to have enough people to cover all of the opportunities. And that's where I think we want to continue to differentiate. While European tech as a whole is ascendant, the hyper-competition of last week's episode primarily exists in sectors which are hot. The consequence of this is that there are pockets of interesting companies in Europe that remain underfunded and undercompeted despite the abundance of capital. In the corners of European tech that haven't been hit by VC groupthink, competition may be almost non-existent. Jan, a partner at leading German fund HV, corroborates this point of view. From his vantage point, underfunding in certain segments is rampant in Europe for structural reasons. If you look at Europe versus the US, but especially Israel, there's probably a, depending on the country, three to 10 X gap in the amount of venture funding available. And I think then the venture funding goes to the easiest investments first on a macro level versus going into the, uh, maybe a little bit crazy risk return ones, which I think is a pity. And then on the other hand. I think there is also, and it's reflected in the first statistics, there is a lack of patient European capital. Despite all of the recent growth, this continued lack of patient capital dampens competitive pressures on European tech. There remains an abundance of nooks and crannies waiting for money to flow into them from funds with differentiated feces. In the face of a growing cohort of fundable companies in underloved sectors, 
perhaps European VCs need not be overly concerned about the arrival of their US counterparts. Another potential explanation for how coolly European VCs view US arrivals is provided by Brian Burke, a principal at Keen Venture Partners. It's a little difficult to separate out like the arrival of US funds here versus just the general you know, surge in the amount of capital that's available to be invested in Europe. Yes, I suppose we could try and single out just the US firms, but point blank, there are just more people with more money, some of it traditional, institutional, some of it corporate, and increasingly a lot of it like angel networks or really successful former founders that are able to back these companies with fewer strings. So I think in general, there's increased competition, but I find it really hard to target it just at the US. According to Brian, European VC has been able to absorb increased US presence so well because it is just part of a wider trend of more and more capital being available to European founders. US funds are joining the party alongside angels and corporates, and thus it is hard to separate out their impact from the mega trend. Everyone, not just US funds, wants a piece of European tech. Venture is without doubt increasingly competitive, driven partly by the influx in US capital and interest. But the story is more nuanced than that. The number of venture fundable European startups is growing faster than funding is. Moreover, venture funding is textured. Several sectors and companies remain unloved when compared to hot categories. To the extent that funds are looking for these unloved businesses, competition is less of an issue. US-driven competition is real, but its impact is a tad overblown. So far, we've looked closely at competition, but have neglected its less sexy twin. Collaboration is the yin to competition's yang. Because competition makes for such good headlines, it will be easy for an outsider to miss how important collaboration is in venture. While funds often talk about winning deals, being the most founder-friendly and seeing all deals before their counterparts, this obscures the dual nature of intra-venture fund relationships. In short, most funds could be described as frenemies. That's the beautiful thing about venture. You're competing with one fund in the morning and then you're collaborating with the same fund on a company that you're already invested in or a company that you're sharing notes on or you're sharing thoughts on that same evening. That's Judith, a partner at La Familia, a Germany-based seed fund investing in B2B startups all over Europe. I really don't think we should think about it in terms of this delineation. I think we're right now in a world where we think way too much about delineations and like Europe versus the US. It's not Europe versus the US, it's Europe and the US. And it's not competitive versus collaborative. It's the, the nature of VC is always both. And I think that's such a beautiful thing about this industry. Like name another industry where your competitor can also be your closest collaborator in the same day. Like typically your competitor is your competitor. And, and, and that's the full story. I would say it's probably 50-50. <laughs> Venture capital funds are forced into collaboration by a number of factors. One is the founders they back. Funds that are invested in the same company are forced to work together with the mutual aim of helping that company achieve an exit. This is exacerbated by the fact that it is rare for a fund to be able to capitalize any individual company from start to finish. Seed funds rely on their Series A counterparts to fund their portfolio company's growth, while the Series A funds in turn rely on Series B funds for the same purpose. Thus, the VC industry is hyperconnected and funds, in spite of competition, maintain friendly relationships with each other. H. V. Zian describes it as a sort of fish market, 
I don't know if it even still exists or not, the Noah in London, that always reminded me a bit of a bit like a fish market. I don't know if you've seen the Tokyo fish market, because you have everyone who has their portfolio and then you're trying to get the interesting deals from the people who invest before you, which for us would be serial angels, entrepreneurs, seed funds, etc. So obviously we connect with those. Then you have your competitors, which are for us, maybe the Crandall's and co of this world where you're like, you're friendly because you've done deals in the past, but you're not necessarily passing off the hottest opportunity to one of those guys. And then you have the later stage funds where you're obviously you're then looking and we've done co-investments in the past. And then you're like, ah, Bessemer has a new Alex Ferrara moved to London. Okay. Let's have coffee. Let's have an intro call and so on. Because obviously if these are strong investors, it's good for your companies if you have a relationship. So I think it's a quite, I think there's people who I actually really like and appreciate and like working with. And then there's, I guess the same as for everyone. Also the transactional side of, of venture capital. Yeah. And specifically mentioning Bessemer, a storied American fund as an object for collaboration strikes a chord with views expressed by some of our other guests. U.S. funds have been great sources of late stage capital for European startups and thus have been perfect collaborators for their European counterparts who have traditionally been earlier stage sources of capital. A symbiotic relationship rather than an adversarial one. Here's Harry Briggs, a partner at OMOS and former investor at Borderton, on where he has historically seen American dollars. We typically come in at Series A and we've been fortunate enough already to have follow-on investment from funds like KOTU and Insight and DST at SoftBank and Heather Sophia and a bunch of big global names. We've dug, done a couple of investments with Index as well. It'd be fantastic. So we clearly these big North American, like slightly later stage funds, they bring very deep pockets. They, they know a lot about that stage of investment and, and the rapid scaling from, I'd say, you know, my experience is probably more scaling from A to B. A lot of these, the, these funds are incredibly good at the scaling from B to IPO. However, as discussed in the last episode of recent times, American capital has been creeping earlier and earlier. Brienne again. Look, the people that can write the biggest checks in the world for the majority are still not located in Europe. So I think when it comes to later stage growth funding, that's a pretty natural fit. I think where we're not seeing a ton of activity from U.S. funds is at the like super hyper local, like a seed accelerator stage. And that's starting to change literally in the last few weeks as some firms are announcing they're going to do accelerators here. So yeah, I think the focus has been more at that like seed A, B stage um, because it's easy to, it's not easy, but at that seed A, B stage, it's easier to be based in London, fly around a little and see something that's, because it's easier to identify talent that way without having to be rooted in one market looking for the best people with the best ideas, which is just a higher volume game of sifting. Will US funds investing earlier stifle their ability to collaborate with their European cousins? Some of our guests don't think that it's so clear cut. Judith again. I think at the end of the day, what we're really seeing more and more is like U.S. funds also being quite collaborative because they know that a lot of their focus will still be on the U.S. And so because they're oftentimes also really big funds will be on potentially later stage companies in comparison to the very early stage companies. So we've actually seen them be fantastic 
collaborators in especially the pre-seed and seed rounds because they know they have a lot to gain from having other seed funds around the table that are native in, in the geography, you know, can support with anything that's potentially on the legal side or hiring. Like when it comes to local networks, that can go a long way in terms of like all of the amazing things and all of the sponsors giving U.S. funds. Like they haven't all been in Europe for the last decade. They haven't all built networks. They don't, you know, know everyone that's like working here at companies, but they're really curious and in, in, in trying to find out and trying to build that over time. And so I think we're seeing a lot of this like collaboration energy coming from their end into the seed markets. And so a lot of the rounds that we're seeing right now are split rounds between like a kind of European local VC and then a U.S. international VC. If that's the delineation that you want to that you want to go with, I think the, the lines are actually a lot more blurry, but, but that's actually a recipe that we're seeing more and more. And founders tend to, if they have the option of having such a syndicate, I think that's something they, they really love and appreciate. Even where U.S. funds are investing the idea, they seem to be willing to split the pie. Paul Murphy, a partner at Lightspeed, one such U.S. fund, has been splitting a lot of pies of late. There was an article, I think, that came out a year or two ago. I don't remember the exact timing, but it was either, I think it was either when, it might have been when Luciana went to Sequoia or when they announced that I was joining Lightspeed and it was maybe the combination of the two or something like that. It was like the Americans are coming and watch how they're going to take all the deal flow. And I think that we've seen already that that is not at all true. And the reality is venture business, I mean, you guys know this, it's such a collaborative business. There's really very few situations today where we come up and we are competing head to head with European fund. And there's just no way for both of us to work with the company. More often what happens is we might lead a company, they might lead the next round or they lead it, we lead the next round. We track the companies that we really like. And we decide we want to work together before they start a process. So I, I feel like it's much more collaborative. And the response, at least that I've received from the European funds has been, we're really happy that you guys are here. The response that I gave US funds when I was at a European fund was, I'm really happy there's more capital from like great companies to raise from here locally. So I think it's, I hope it's all perceived as net positive. I think that. As we go into slightly more uncertain times, I think that everyone's going to be very happy that there's more capital and more investors on the ground in Europe. Why are funds so likely to split the pie? Our hypothesis is that they stand to benefit from each other's competence. European funds bring certain things to the table that their American counterparts are unlikely to have and vice versa. Often funds work together to maximize the chances of success. American funds, for instance, bring connections and potential customers. Harry here. I think some of these really big later stage growth type funds, funds like Insight or General Atlantic, or they, they do have enormous portfolios. They are able to plug you, the, the, the company into a number of areas that you might not have known about. They also often have platforms, essentially teams that the VC fund pays for, which assist portfolio founders. Here's Paul describing Lightspeed's platform. So I think our approach is like, what can we offer founders that's super high leverage, the kinds of things that they, they, they realistically just can't justify uh, hiring or, or building on their own. So as an example, I think talent is, you know, I think there's no question talent is always like the core of a good platform team, uh, because that can be a very difficult thing for early stage companies to 
to grasp and to attract on their own. So we have talent partners that are really deep, as in they used to run some of the best executive search firms in enterprise, in consumer, in engineering. And then they have now built their teams. And so what they can do is in some cases they can actually facilitate a search, but the more valuable thing they can do is actually advise founders and say, here's how we suggest based on all of our experience and these data points and the current sort of trends in the market. This is how we would think you should build a remote first engineering team. Here are some best practices that you can use. These are the kinds of leaders that are really good at leading those teams. Here's the energy framework that you can use when you're talking to people, both junior team members and senior team members. And for this specific business, we think this is the right search firm. These other ones are going to pitch, but this is the one that I want to talk to. Just getting that stuff right can be game-changing because any search firm is going to put really impressive people in front of you. And, I, and younger firms, especially, and I was guilty of this when I was a founder, it's really tempting to hire them because you're like, wow, they have all this experience, but there could be little details that you miss. So I think that's like the most, frankly, that's the most important thing that, that we offer. But then there's other things. We've got a data team, got a marketing team, which are incredible. They can advise, they can consult, they can make sure that you get off and running or avoid any pitfalls. And it, I think that the most unique aspect to our platform though, is actually the fact that we're a global fund. So more often than not, what we do is we connect founders in one geography with partners in other geographies where they're looking to expand and they just want to talk to someone about the market. Or maybe they're looking to, to add an adjacent business or buy a company. And so that is, we get super, super high leverage from that kind of just internal invest global investor base. And lastly, American funds bring deeper pockets to the table, allowing them to de-risk future funding events. What we've definitely seen is some of those US funds be so high conviction that they will go again. So their pockets support it and their conviction supports it. And they are doubling down. Mm. like as soon as they can mm. and then look we, and we've definitely seen ones that have had amazing up rounds zoe chambers is a partner at frontline ventures and has co-invested with multiple us-based funds i certainly have seen the benefit of a very deep pocketed fund who really believes in a business and can almost take their brain away from fundraising if they're going to offering kind of fair terms to say please just keep going when it comes to how European funds contribute to these syndicates, almost all of our guests point to their local knowledge and networks. To reiterate, La Familia's Judith. They know they have a lot to gain from having other seed funds around the table that are native in, in the geography, you know, and support with anything that's potentially on the legal side or hiring. Like when it comes to local networks, that can go a long way in terms of like all of the amazing things and all of the plazas giving US funds. Like they haven't all been in Europe for the last decade. They haven't all built networks. They don't, you know, know everyone that's like working here at companies, but they're really curious and in, in, in trying to find out and trying to build that over time. I think in terms of the structural advantages, it definitely is the, you know, local networks. It's the ability to help companies hire. It's the ability to, even also in, in diligencing founders, right? In the end, it seems in many instances, US and European funders combine and work together in a bid to offer the most comprehensive amount of support for their portfolio companies, even as they move earlier and earlier. It seems like a far cry from all-out war. Brian does a great job of summarizing this phenomenon. I really, I don't think that the US-EU funding thing should be like an us versus them, no pun intended. Yeah. I think there's great things 
that happen, not only for founders, which is what we talked about, but there's a lot of best practices outside of even things like terms that funds can teach each other. I think one thing that we're super open to is obviously like working with other funds outside of the Netherlands, across Europe, in the U.S., what's normal in one spot might not be normal in the other and vice versa. So I think we're excited and open to that kind of thing. And it's very probable that what's best for a lot of the companies that are getting funded here is that maybe they need some local networked help with customer introductions or hiring and also with scaling to the U.S. So a combination of the two might actually be the most lethal. So let's go. Nobody disputes the fact that the influx of capital into the European venture ecosystem has impacted competition levels. We spent the whole of the last episode talking about it. What, however, emerges as we take an even closer look are two conclusions. Firstly, that fear of competition specifically from US capital is a bit overblown. And secondly, that the influx of US capital has actually provided a significant impetus for collaboration. Regarding the first conclusion, it's clear that venture is partially insulated from overcompetition. While certain companies and sectors end up being hot, many segments and promising companies go unloved by the wider VC world. Moreover, US capital entering the market now should be viewed in the context of the coming of age of European tech, during which new capital has flowed into the industry from several sources, such as angels and family offices, not just American VCs. On the second point, the fact that venture funds often have significant incentives to work closely with each other serves to anchor competition to a reasonable level. You shouldn't go into all-out war with someone who you share multiple boards with. And if you choose to do so, you need to be extremely strategic about it. Thank you so much for listening to this latest episode. We hope you've enjoyed it. If you haven't yet done it, please do subscribe to our podcast on whatever podcasting app that you use. And feel free to reach out to us at associatedpodcast at gmail.com or via Twitter at associated underscore pod. Also, keep your ears posted for the next episode on the challenges that the American newcomers are facing staffing up, which will drop in two weeks' time. <laughs>